I'm Colleen Tinker, and I'm doing former Adventist commentary on the Sabbath School Quarterly. The lesson that we're talking about tonight is for next week, December 16 through 22, 2023. Now, the title of this lesson, which is lesson number 12, is Esther and Mordecai. Now, the interesting thing about this lesson is that the author of the quarterly is making the case that Esther and Mordecai were examples in the nation of Persia of cross-cultural evangelism. And I have to say right up front, that makes no sense when you look at the biblical account. But I'm going to tell you my three problems that I've identified in this lesson that we're going to talk about tonight. The first one is that the story of Esther and Mordecai obviously is not a story of evangelism. Rather, it is a story of the Lord's sovereign intervention. He is sovereign over history, sovereign over the nations, and he was sovereign over Esther's becoming queen and Mordecai's involvement in the Persian court. The second point is that this lesson looks at scripture as moral instruction instead of as an account of God's faithfulness to his own will, such as the completion of his commands given centuries before to wipe out the Amalekites. And we will talk about that as we go. Third, Israel, unlike the church, was a nation serving Yahweh. The body of Christ in the New Testament, conversely, is not a nation, but It is individuals whom the Lord pulls out of the nations and sends them filled with his spirit into the nations. So the concept is completely different. Israel was a nation. The church is not a nation, but individuals scattered into the nations bearing the gospel with the presence of the Lord Jesus. So how is this whole premise being developed? Well, the lesson once again, appropriates the Word of God as an instruction manual for Adventist evangelism. This week, the lesson is based on at the story of Esther and Mordecai. Now, ironically, before we get into that story, Adventism's eschatology that features the supposed coming of a Sunday law at the international level in the time of trouble, that presupposition colors how they see everything, and they give themselves away in the first day's lesson introducing the week. This is what the lesson says. This is in Saturday's lesson. Quote, None of us, for instance, lives in an Adventist country where the principles of our faith are to some degree the law of the land. But before being deported, the Jewish people had been living in their own country where the principles of their faith were also enshrined in the law of the land. On one level, think how easy that should have made it to be faithful to God. After all, how much easier would it be to keep the seventh-day Sabbath if, in fact, keeping the seventh-day Sabbath were enshrined in the legal codes of the nation? End quote. That, to me, is an unbelievable, egregious tipping of the hand The thought exercise that they set up here reveals that the Adventist fear of the Sunday law is actually the flip side of a wish that the law of the land would command Sabbath keeping. In fact, this idea 
actually found its way into the internationally distributed Sabbath School Quarterly. It reveals that Adventism really has no core understanding of what it means to be a believer, a true believer, someone who has trusted Christ. True believers don't live because the law of the land makes it easy for them. They are able to honor God because they have trusted Jesus and have been born again and filled with his spirit. They have no true understanding of what that means. And this particular sentence in the introduction of their week's lessons reveals what their bias is. Legalized Sabbath keeping or legalized morality in the laws of the land has no ability to change people's hearts. It has no ability to make people honor God. Only God can make people honor God. But this tips the Adventist's hand. So what does this have to do with the Jews in Persia? Well, the story of Esther and Mordecai is not a story of how to win souls. It is a story that derived out of the Babylonian exile. Now, we all remember the story of how King Nebuchadnezzar came into Judah and took them captive, and the book of Daniel tells us that story in some detail. So after the 70 years of captivity in Babylon, the nation of Persia, Medo-Persia, conquered the city of Babylon and deposed the Babylonian king. We even learned that in the book of Daniel. So when Medo-Persia took over the nation, the, the side of the dual power that became more prominent was Persia. And by the time Esther became the queen of Persia, Persia was the dominant power. Now the Jews living in Persia were not living there by the law of Moses. Now they did have God's law in their history and they were still honoring the God of that law, but their law was not the law of the land. The Jews in Persia did not evangelize the Persians as Christians evangelize people, certainly not as the Adventists understand evangelism. Jews in their covenant with God were promised blessings for obedience and they were promised curses if they disobeyed the law. In fact, that very part of the covenant agreement was why the Jews were exported into Babylon in the first place. So they were to represent Yahweh, but they weren't going into the world and telling the pagans about him. They were supposed to represent God by being obedient to the terms of the covenant. And if they did that, God would bless them. As they trusted God... To keep his covenant promises to them, the nations would then see that Yahweh was far greater than the pagan gods, and they would learn to fear Israel and to fear their God. They would see that Yahweh was the greatest God who could conquer enemies and deliver his people in spite of their enemies' best efforts. But if, according to the law of Moses, if, according to the covenant God made with Israel, the Israelites became disobedient and began worshiping pagan gods and indulging in pagan practices, God's provision and protection would cease. And ultimately, he did exile them. And that very scenario is how the story of Esther and Mordecai unfolds. At the end of the exile in Babylon, the nation was given permission to return to the land. But not all the Jews went back. 
They had made lives for themselves. They had established houses and families, and some of them just became comfortable living there. So Mordecai was a Jew who had descended from the people who did not go back to the land. Now, according to this account of him in the book of Esther, he was a Jew of great integrity. The lesson did get that point about Mordecai right. He was a person of integrity, but he worked very closely with the king, and he protected the king and came to his defense in many occasions. He was also politically savvy, and when the queen of Persia was deposed by a disgruntled king, and the call went out into Persia for all the beautiful young girls to come and essentially try out to be the queen, Mordecai encouraged his young cousin Esther, whom he was raising as his daughter, to go and try out. And as God would have it, the king picked Esther to be his queen. Now, it was kept a secret that she was a Jew. Her becoming queen offered, ultimately, a political asset to the Jews. Her ethnicity was almost like a hidden trump card that, if the need arose, could be played to the advantage of the Jews. And that's exactly what happened in this story. The underlying story that the quarterly doesn't tell is the story of God's perfect will bringing his commands to completion. Now, this is not a story I had ever heard in Adventism, and when I first read about it, after coming out just a few years after leaving Adventism, it overwhelmed me. It took my breath away. It kind of made me emotional, actually. But here's the story. It goes way back to King Saul, and the story is told in 1 Samuel 15. In that chapter of the Old Testament, we see that King Saul had received a command from God through the prophet Samuel, that he was to go to war with the Amalekites and he was to kill every single one of them and take no spoils. He was to preserve nothing. Now you say, why would God command the genocide of a people? And here is what God said. The Amalekites were the first nation who attacked the nation of Israel as God brought them out of Egypt into Canaan. The Amalekites came up at the rear, attacked the women and the children and the weak, and devastated them. And God, protecting his people, his covenant people to whom he had made promises, protected them ultimately from the Amalekites, and his punishment to the Amalekites for attacking his people was that ultimately they were to be wiped out. Now that seems harsh to us today, but God is a God of faithfulness. He's a God of protection and provision. He had promised Israel the land, and the Amalekites were not honoring the people of God, even though they had asked for permission to pass. So their disobedience was the reason that God had sent Saul the command to wipe them out. But Saul didn't obey. Now, we see in Deuteronomy 25, 17 to 19, the story of when the Amalekites had attacked Israel. They were the first nation to come against them after leaving Egypt. But when Saul went to war against them, he didn't want to kill them all. He took care of a lot of the weak ones, the less desirable livestock, but he spared the king, King Agag, and he kept the best of their livestock and spoils. He used the excuse that he 
He killed all the rest of them because they weren't worth it to bring to the Lord, but he brought the living ones to the Lord for a sacrifice. Well, that wasn't what God had asked him to do. God had asked him to wipe all of them out. So Samuel met him and reprimanded him and said, why haven't you done what the Lord asked? And Saul made excuses to cover his bad behavior. You know, oh, I did this for the Lord. Well, no, he didn't do it for the Lord. The Lord had asked him to do something else. It was because of this disobedience that God said he was going to remove Saul from being king. This was the last straw. So hundreds of years later now, in the nation of Persia, hundreds of years later, we meet the story of Mordecai. Now, Mordecai, it turns out, and it tells us that in the book of Esther, was a descendant of Kish. Kish was Saul's father, the father of King Saul. Mordecai was his descendant. Now, what happens was a little drama. The king of Persia was reading his annals, and he discovered that Mordecai had prevented him from being killed in a plot against his life. And the king hadn't realized that Mordecai had done that. So he called Haman, his advisor, and said, what do you recommend be done for a man who has saved the king's life? And Haman, thinking, of course the king meant him, said, oh, dress him up in the king's robe, put a crown on his head, put him on the king's horse, and ride him through the town with somebody calling out, this is what's done to the man whom the king wants to honor. And the king looked at him and said, perfect, you go do that for Mordecai. Well, Haman was enraged because Mordecai never would bow the knee to Haman and show him the honor that Haman wanted him shown. Mordecai, being a God-fearing Jew, would not bow the knee to anyone but Yahweh. Haman had been throwing his weight around the court at Susa, and Mordecai had failed to give him the proper obeisance, and Haman was angry with him, so that he had to lead Mordecai through the streets, proclaiming his heroism was more than Haman could bear. He was so upset that he cooked up a plot. He realized at this point that Mordecai was a Jew. He knew that the nation of Persia was filled with Jews who had multiplied there after the exile to Babylon, and he cooked up a plot and not telling the king exactly who the people were or why he was doing this, he got the king to agree that these people should be wiped out on a certain day by Persian soldiers. So Haman had come up with this plot, and Mordecai, meanwhile, was being honored. But when Mordecai found out about this plot against his people, he enlisted his niece Esther to come to the rescue. Well, Esther at this point had to reveal to the king that she was a Jew. And to make the long story shorter, because we all know the story, Esther exposed Haman's plot. And when the king realized that Haman had threatened the life of his own queen, his own advisor Mordecai, and all of their people in the land, he was enraged. How could Haman have done this? It was a double cross. And he ordered Haman's death. The real irony of this story is that Haman had already constructed a gallows, a very tall gallows from which he was going to hang Mordecai. And the king said, hang Haman on the gallows he prepared for Mordecai. And that's exactly what happened. But here is the second twist to this story that I never heard before. Haman 
According to his name, according to his family name, it is clear that Haman was an Amalekite. He had descended from the line of Agag, that king that Saul originally did not kill. And Haman was representing the people that were not destroyed hundreds of years before by King Saul. And God, who is God, who is sovereign over all the affairs of men, was not going to let that go unfinished. And in his sovereign wisdom, God had Mordecai, the descendant of Saul, complete the eradication of the Amalekites when Haman and all his sons were wiped out. Now, because the laws of the Medes and Persians could not be changed, the king worked with Mordecai, exalted Mordecai to take Haman's position in court, put the purple robes on him, put a crown on his head, and gave him great authority in the land of Persia. And he commissioned Mordecai to write a new law, to use his royal stamp on it, and to give all the Jews permission to defend themselves on the day appointed for their death. In other words, it wouldn't be a surprise. The Jews could be prepared, and they had kingly authority from the court of Susa to defend themselves and to take all the spoils they wanted. Well, the interesting thing is there is a little verse in the center of the book of Esther. It's in chapter 8 in verse 17. Now, the lesson quotes this verse and it uses this verse to say that Mordecai and Esther, by their integrity, had sufficiently influenced the people of Persia that they became Jews because they saw their integrity and they represented the purposes of the Jews and their purposes of their God. Here's what the passage says. It begins in verse 15 and ends in 17. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with a large crown of gold and a garment of fine linen and purple, and the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. For the Jews, there was light and gladness and joy and honor in each and every province and in each and every city, wherever the king's commandment and his decree arrived, that is the decree to defend themselves against the Persians, there was gladness and joy for the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many of the peoples of the land became Jews because the dread of the Jews had fallen on them. This is not a story of evangelism. This is not an example of Mordecai and Esther practicing cross-cultural evangelism to get people to become Jews. This is a story of God's sovereign faithfulness to his own purposes, his own plans, and his own people. God is the one who made this happen. The fear of the Jews came upon the Persians because God arranged to save them and to demonstrate his authority that was greater than the authority of the Persians, greater than the authority of the Persian gods. He protected his people who were otherwise underdogs in the nation. This was God's work, but the lesson uses it as an example of cross-cultural evangelism. And I say, what a way to denigrate the scriptures and to reduce the authority, the wisdom, and the sovereignty of God. But then as Adventists, we didn't learn that God was sovereign over everything. We believed, 
that human free will was the ultimate value that even God had to honor. But no, God is God. And when we honor him, when we walk in the ways he tells us to walk and trust him, when we trust him, he works. And we don't thwart his working. So Israel, contrary to the way the lesson portrays them, is not the same type of entity as the church. And that is the comparison that the lesson is trying to make, that Israel of old was just a precursor to the church of today. And of course, as Adventists, they claim the identity of the true church of today. They miss so many things on so many levels by making this assumption. Israel is not a type of entity that is the same as the church. They were a nation. They were not evangelistic. The Great Commission for the Church is to go and make disciples of all nations. That is a new covenant command. That was never a command to the Jews. The Church is not a nation. It is made up of individuals, one at a time, who trust in the Lord Jesus, who are born again, and who are sealed with the Holy Spirit. God sends His body into the nations to take His presence and His gospel to the people. The model of the church is a completely opposite model to the model of the nation of Israel. People came to Israel on the basis of God's faithfulness to his covenant promises to his people. When Israel obeyed, God blessed them. They didn't go into the nations to get converts. Rather, they were to honor God, and God would bring people to them, just as in the nation of Persia. When they appealed to God, when Esther had her court and her women and the nation pray for her to go before the king, God answered their prayers and he saved his people. This was not evangelism. Adventism, however, claims to be spiritual Israel. But this claim is false in two primary ways. First, Christians are not a replacement of Israel. The church is something completely new, based on the new covenant in Jesus' blood and on his finished atonement for sin. The church's job is different from Israel's. In our mandate, we are to make disciples. Israel's mandate was to trust God and obey him, and he would bring the nations to her. Second, Adventism is not part of the church either. And I know that that's a piece of information that's really hard for Adventists to understand. It was hard for me at first as well. I didn't see the difference, but it's really clear to me now. Adventism does not teach the biblical gospel. It has a false model of humanity. It doesn't teach that we are born literally spiritually dead and unable to either seek or to please God. Adventism teaches a false Jesus, a fallible Jesus who could have sinned. He could have failed. He, he gave up his divine attribute of omnipresence. But if that were true, Jesus would have ceased to be God. Jesus never gave up one attribute of God. He was fully God, clothed in human flesh, and he never, ever stopped being God, fully God. Adventism pretends to be a true church. It pretends to follow the Bible, but in reality, Adventism uses the Bible to cover the fact of their great controversy worldview. 
Adventism has an unbiblical model of reality, and it's moralizing and powerless. It derives its great controversy worldview from its prophet, Ellen White. It doesn't want to tell people that, but it's exactly where it comes from. Adventism generates guilt and anxiety among its members, and these reactions tend to keep Adventists inside, trying hard to please God and to do what is right through the way Adventism interprets the Bible through Ellen White's grid and vocabulary. But what's needed is the real gospel. Adventists need to know that they're born dead in sin, literally, spiritually dead in sin. And spiritual doesn't mean just a state of mind. It means they have an immaterial part of themselves which is born dead in sin, Ephesians 2, 1 to 3. And they must be made alive. And there's only one way to be made alive, and that is to believe in the finished work of the Lord Jesus on the cross. When he took our sins, he died, he was buried, and he rose again on the third day because his sacrifice was sufficient. He completely paid for human sin by his death. And when we trust him, we receive that release from the curse of death, and we're born again with eternal life. We're eternally secure in him, and that's what Adventists need to know. Jesus is calling all of us to submit to him and to his word, and to allow his spirit to teach us the truth about the Lord Jesus. We serve a sovereign God who has been in charge of the entire history of humanity, and even over us. Our God knows us. Our God has given us his word, and he asks us to trust him and to read it on its own terms, believing he tells us the truth. Trust him today. <laughs>